0: Matthew 17, starting at verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offence to them, go to the lake and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself.
1: I wonder, does your newsfeed supply you with puzzles and optical illusions designed to tell you how high your IQ is and whether you have 20-20 vision? Mine appears to have an endless supply of blocks of numbers, 138, 138, 138, 100 numbers on the page, with one one eight three. and you have 20-20 vision, you're like a night sniper if you can spot the odd number in 10 seconds. And then a mountain scene with rocks and scrubs, and can you spot the leopard hidden in this image? And you have an IQ of 5,999, if you can, within 15 seconds and so forth. I asked one of our young staff members whether their news feed supplied them with a similar array of puzzles. No, I'm only aware of them because my elderly relatives send them to me from time to time to tell me how good their eyesight is. Ah, It was Leo Elborn, in case anybody's wondering. Well, I think this morning we are considering one of the most subversive passages of Jesus' teaching in all of the Gospels. And on the face of it, what we have may appear to be somewhat innocuous with a number of key important discipleship lessons, nothing though out of the ordinary. But as we study it with more care, I want to suggest it is profoundly disruptive now what I want to do then is to take it in two ways, uh, to observe the general scene in front of us as one might. And that's going to be, if you like, our first read through. And many of those lessons can then be taken and applied to the second read through. And I'm afraid we're going to have to go and talk about this over, over lunch and so forth, to the second read through, where second time through, we're going to see just how subversive it is. Let's take the the on-the-face-of-it reading. There are so many fascinating details. I haven't got nearly enough time to observe them all. Verse 17, for example, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I am just on its own, that exasperated explanation from Jesus gives a sense of the psychological and emotional weight he bore in his earthly ministry. I wonder if you ever thought of that. He's just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He's met with Moses and Elijah. His face has become gleaming white, his clothes white as light. The glory cloud of God's presence has descended on him. The voice has spoken, and and now this. I mean, what a come down. What must it have been like through his earthly ministry for the Lord of glory to face such relentless failure? And it's been a key part of the theme, one of the key themes in the series we've been in in this part of Matthew, Herod and the murder of the Baptist, uh, Uh, and uh, the Pharisees and their failure. Moses had said at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that Israel were a perverse and crooked generation, and this is exactly how they are 1,400 years later. But I think the big shock here is that it's the nine disciples at the foot of the mountain who are part of this generation. And throughout this section, the unbelieving heart of believers has been flagged. Just a couple of examples, Peter when he failed in the walking on the water, oh, you of little faith. And the disciples, as they crossed the lake, oh, you of little faith. And then Peter, when, he de- when, he, when Jesus declared he had to die, oh, get behind me, Satan, says Jesus to Peter, and so on. And, and now this it seems that these apostles are a little different to the world. There's a huge amount to say there. We could spend a whole Sunday on it. Then verse 20, just skipping on a bit, he said to them, because of your little faith, you were unable to do this. For truly, I say to you, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll be able to say this mountain move from here to there and it'll move and nothing will be impossible for you. Moving mountains is proverbial in the Bible for overcoming great difficulties. And the comment is not a comment about the failure of the quantity of faith. All you need is a grain of mustard seed. It's about what that faith is in. Jesus. The tiniest amount of trust in Jesus will overcome the most remarkable difficulties. These are the apostles. They've been given special power in the age when Jesus is with us physically to do extraordinary miracles in the apostolic age. And it seems that they were treating this power as a magic charm and kind of, oh, well, it'll work even if I don't look to Jesus kind of stuff. And I suppose the issue then is who Jesus is and whether the disciples are looking to him, not how much faith they have. And true Christian faith, genuine Christian disciples, it's not some sort of inner quality that we drum up from within ourselves, something subjective and almost magical. Nor is it kind of believe in yourself and you'll be able to move mountains. Solid trust in the objective truth of who Jesus is, crucified and risen. Well, that is groundbreaking faith, even a little bit of it. And true Christian faith is not magic. It can't be purchased from the Diagon Alley or wielded by graduates from the School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And we could have a whole talk on this. So much to dwell on. How many times have you been told, I wish I had your faith, as if faith was some sort of subjective, magical thing within one person and not in another person? No, it's who Jesus is that matters, and when you look at him, you'll be able to trust him because of who he is. Then as we come through this first reading, just getting the lie of the land, the contours as it were, you see Jesus' second prediction of his death. With one small change now, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Such is the perversity of this perverse and twisted generation of which, incidentally, we are a part, that it hands the King of glory, the Son of Man, over to death, O perverse and twisted generation, his death and resurrection. That's what the faith is in, the reality that he went to the cross to die for sin and rose on the third day, authentic Christian faith in objective Christian truth, and then of course we've got the two drachma half shekel tax and this fish and there's so much to observe in our first read through glance just at this I mean it take takes place in the house this is Matthew's house, incidentally, in Matthew's gospel, that is the house in which so much of the teaching takes place. Matthew has now become our scribe who instructs us, the Apostle Matthew. And the temple tax was a tax on every Israelite male over the age of 19, even Jews as far as where as Babylon paid it. It was half a shekel or two drachmas each. It was for the upkeep of the temple, especially for sacrifice and such. And in Exodus, it's called... The atonement tax, which you pay to make atonement for yourselves as sacrifices are made on your behalf. And it's paid at Passover time. And the disciples are gathering in Galilee in order to go up to Jerusalem at Passover time. And so the question's obvious. Don't you pay your taxes, says Peter, to, 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 to Jesus? He hasn't quite grasped who Jesus is. But there are so many little incidents just to dwell on. Even here, there, Peter was speaking outside the house. I don't imagine that Jesus was kind of standing at the window, listening in, see if he could hear. what He wasn't insecure like that. And the obvious implication is that he knew what they were talking about, the divinity of Jesus. He, he knows what people are thinking throughout the Gospels. He knows our ambitions. He can see what we're watching even. And then there's the fish which I have to say I'm particularly interested in. But uh, in one sense, that a fish should have a shining silver coin in its mouth, well, that's not that surprising. Any lure fisherman will know that. But this, he knew the precise fish. He told Peter which fish he would catch. He knew that this fish would have the precise sum for the payment of Both Jesus and Peter's tax. I mean, that is a thing. And that Jesus is now going to provide the atonement tax, hot on the heels of his promise that he's going up to Jerusalem to be handed over as a sacrifice for sin. I mean, that's a thing. And then there's something to talk about not giving offense, even though you know this radical, disruptive subversive truth. Oh, don't give offense to them. I don't, by the way, think it means that if we're facing a particular tax bill, we need to go fishing, though I quite like that as an application. I don't think that's one of them. There's so much here, isn't there, in this read-through, and we could have dwelt and spent 20 minutes on every single one of them, but I actually think Having been shown the lay of the land now, if you like, first read through, it would be a mistake to spend all our time on just one of these incidents, though they all feed into the two main points, and we'll have to think about that quite a bit as we go home and have our Sunday lunch. I think the two lessons that Matthew wants to teach us are profoundly subversive Deeply threatening to any secularist, atheistic, or religious establishment, and strongly encouraging to disciples of Jesus. So, two simple points that cross shaped faith moves mountains as the universal kingdom of Jesus is established forever. And that cross shaped trust in Jesus builds temples as God's true family are gathered. Okay, so moving mountains. Now, I have to confess that I had never really ever made sense of Matthew 14 through 20, though I'd tried on many occasions to try and teach it. I can remember one absolutely disastrous Bible study I led on this in the late 1980s, and the experience remains embedded in my subconscious no matter how many therapy sessions I might have. If you ever think you have led the worst Bible study in the world, think again. It happened in 1987. I think it ended with people just getting up and leaving the room, and I was left there kind of mouth opening and shutting with nothing going on. I mean, actually, having just taught the passage over at St. Peter's, you may feel, <laughs> they may feel that I'm none the wiser now. But I think the key lies in verse 20. So glance down at verse 20. If you haven't got a Bible, you need one. And look over your neighbor's shoulder. He said to his disciples, that is these nine who were unable to cast out the demon, Why couldn't you do it? Oh, because of your little faith. Truly I say to you, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. It will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So then the question is, what mountain is he talking about? And I want to suggest to you, it cannot, in its immediate context, be any old mountain. He's not talking about Mount Everest or... um, Snowden, or whatever your favorite mountain is. The mountain of which he is speaking has to be the mountain of transfiguration, which is what's just happened. If you look over the page, don't bother, but he's just been with Peter, James, and John, where he has been transfigured in front of them. And I want to suggest that Jesus is speaking metaphorically, spiritually, spiritually if you like, Of the truth that has just been revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, which God has given his authorizing statement to. At this mountain, God has confirmed the identity of Jesus. At this mountain, God has confirmed the mission of Jesus. Remember the vision, the mountain, Moses, Elijah, the glory cloud, the transfiguration of Jesus into his resurrected and ascended glory, the Son of Man, his face gleamed, his clothes were white as light. This is God's eternal king, his glorious ruler, before whom every knee will bow, whose name every tongue will confess. Whether you like it or not, you will surrender to Jesus one day, willingly or unwillingly. And this is the mountain where God the Father has descended in the glory cloud and proclaimed only three times in the gospel where God speaks directly from heaven and he has proclaimed, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So this mountain is the place where Peter, James, and John have been shown who Jesus is. And the other nine, including Matthew, by the way, have not yet seen this. Yet, as these apostles grasp the reality of who Jesus is, that Jesus has come through his death and resurrection to deal with sin once for all time, to be raised to a position of eternal glory, to be given the position of all power and dominion and authority and sovereignty for all eternity, Once they grasp this, they will have, if you like, even if it's a tiny mustard seed of faith, mountain-moving faith. He's speaking spiritually, metaphorically. But look again at verse 20. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there. Where is the there? I mean, Jesus is talking about a place... You will move from here to there. Well, I think the answer should be clear to us if we've been attentive as Jesus has been speaking. So chapter 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed and on the third day rise. And the disciples are gathering in Galilee to go up to Jerusalem. Where the half drachma, ta- the two drachma tax is to be paid. So, this mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, with everything that has been revealed about Jesus Christ as Lord and King of Glory, this truth, as it were, will be moved from here to take the place of everything that Jerusalem symbolizes and speaks of in the whole of the scriptures. The great mountain of God, his temple mount, Mount Zion. The truth that Jesus has proclaimed and shown on the Mount of Transfiguration, well, this is a whole replacement. That everything that the Old Testament pointed to in Jerusalem is now going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This mountain. And, you know, a mustard seed is really very, very small I mean, I have in my pocket here, I've just fished it out, a mustard seed. Here it is. Can you see it? That's the point. And if I drop it, you're not going to be able to find it afterwards. I mean, you can try if you like. Please don't bother. It's just not worth the effort. But anyway, it wasn't a mustard seed, to be honest. It was a cabbage seed, but they're both brassicas, so don't worry about that. But you, know, you can plant it and grow your own cabbage. But the point is, it's absolutely tiny. And if you trust this Jesus... His death and resurrection, which is why he goes straight on to talk about his death and resurrection, you see. At that point, as they're gathering in, in Galilee, he says the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem and he will be delivered over. But if you trust this, you will have mountain-moving faith. We're speaking metaphorically. It's picture language for the replacement. If you like, the doing away of Jerusalem as a place now of any significance, other than a, a point on a map because they're going to move this mountain there. And they did. And they did. Some of you are saying, oh, well, Jesus did it. Yeah, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'll move the mountain. He says, if you have faith as small as a grain of mustard, you'll move it. And the apostles did. Starting from Jerusalem, they went from Jerusalem proclaiming this glorious truth to the ends of the earth. In the apostolic age, they were given special power from Jesus, not given to disciples today, in order to be able to heal and cure the blind and even raise the dead to show the and underscore the reality of what was going on in the apostolic age, and they went out to the ends of the earth. And the Acts of the Apostles sees them in Rome, the center point of the Roman Empire. And within decades, this gospel truth, this mountain truth, if you like, was being proclaimed even here in London. I was just speaking over at St. Peter's, where allegedly the first church in England was established. That very point, it was amazing to be able to say to people, even here, 179 AD, this gospel truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, risen and ascended, crucified for sin, was proclaimed. You see how subversive and radical it is. Mountains form such a place in the language of the Bible. The nations stream to the mountain of the Lord. The Lord establishes his mountain as a mountain above all other mountains. God brings his people to the mountain. So this mountain is the truth that Jesus is God the Son, the Son of God. He will die for the sins of the world, be raised. And it has been proclaimed all over the world. And, incidentally, is being proclaimed this morning here. So, I mean, we could go any number of places here that these tiny faithers, these little faithers, they did actually owe you of little faith. This perverse generation, those in whom so much of the world was found as disciples, they did actually go and proclaim this truth, and it has reached the ends of the earth. And wherever it's gone... Not simply Jerusalem, wherever it's taken hold, it has challenged to its very core the structures of whatever culture it has landed in and transformed whole cultures. It's a bit boring to reference people like Tom Holland and uh, Micklethwaite and Wildridge. God is back, and you know um, all of these, Douglas Murray and so forth, these secularist writers, so many of them who acknowledge that wherever the Christian faith has been proclaimed, mountains have been moved for the better in cultures. But I'll leave that to you over lunch. I think this makes sense of the next incident. uh, The key to this second incident is in the purpose of the temple tax. And some of us will already be been saying, yeah, well, it's obvious to me, William. Of course, you should have realized this years ago. And why did you make such a mountain out of a molehill, if you will forgive my, uh, um, back then when you were trying to teach all this. The second truth then is uh, there in verse 24 through 27, cross-shaped faith, the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus builds God's temple. Okay, so the tax is the temple tax. We've seen that. Every child over the age of 19, every male boy over the age of 19 had to pay it. Even Jews who moved out of Israel paid the temple tax. The purpose of the temple tax is spelled out in the book of Exodus. You can go and read it if you want. In chapter 30, it is described as a tax you give to the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. And atonement means paying a price to cover the punishment that our sin deserves. And so you paid the tax to make sure that an animal was sacrificed so that your sins were covered. That's the point of the temple tax. But you see in verse 26, when Peter replied, well, what Jesus says, verse 25, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And Peter replies from others, we all know that. Look at the royal family. You don't have to pay tax if you're connected to the one to whom tax is given, uh, so forth, so, so as to speak. And Jesus says, well, the sons then are free. And once again, Peter has failed to realize who Jesus is and what Jesus is about to do. And it's an explosive truth. For if the temple is God's house where God dwells and if the temple is the place where pardon for sin is administered, as Jesus says that he is a child of the one to whom the temple belongs and he therefore certainly doesn't need to pay this tax for atonement and, and, and nor does anybody who's with him. You see what Jesus is saying? Not only Jerusalem, but also the temple is about to be done away with. Why do you need a, a temple when sacrifice for sin has already been made? And so, every religion, every culture that says, Well, I must do my best, I must be the best me if I'm going to be truly accepted, I must present my best picture of myself, every culture that is enslaved by this horrible, I must do this, I must do that, I must keep the five pillars, Uh, I must improve my karma, I must keep the law of the Old Testament, and I must make some sort of reparation for my sin, if only I'm going to be accepted. Well, all of that's now done away with by Jesus. You see how subversive it is. This is my father's house. I am the son of my father. I don't have to pay atonement tax because I'm about to go to Jerusalem to make atonement for sin. I'm perfect anyway. I have no sin of my own. And by the way, that payment covers both me and Peter, you. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Well, that leaves me with two questions, and we're just about done. Now, the first question, why? Why is it so subversive? I mean, why does it take such kind of seeing? Is the preacher just playing clever, well, or maybe not so clever, conjuring tricks? I wonder if it's ever struck you how subversive passages of the Scriptures are, but because they are preached and proclaimed in a highly antagonistic culture, it it's kind of takes some seeing. The Book of Daniel's like that. The Book of Revelation is like that. I think this passage is like that. So what? Well, the implications for the Church of Matthew's day are legion. Where the establishment of the day continue to resist the proclamation of the gospel with persecuting zeal, Jesus is saying to his apostles and any who side with the truth that they teach, just a tiny grain of faith in this King Jesus, and you will see that whole establishment swept away, which it was, and any other hostile establishment... Don't be a little faither. Faith as small as a grain of mustard seed will do this. Faith as small as a grain of mustard seed will see sin forgiven as we trust in Jesus who forgives sins. And faith as small as mustard seed as we now proclaim this truth that Jesus is the risen ascended king who died for sin will see whole, if you like, establishments swept away, mountains moved. Oh, and by the way, it will mean taking up your own cross, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, death to self, investing your whole life. But this truth that Jesus is the Son of Man, ascended, enthroned, reigning in glory, with all power and dominion, authority and sovereignty over all other dominions, seen and unseen, in heaven and on earth, this is the truth that establishes the kingdom of Christ, which is the mountain to which the nations come. And that is extraordinarily reassuring in the face of Putin's grip and chaos, in the face of utter turmoil in Western economies as the givens of the last 35 years crumble all around us, in the face of personal crises, circumstances in the face of secularist, idolatrous ideologies, where identity and sexuality are trumpeted as the mountain on which we all take our stand, profoundly subversive. And it was established. And it will be established as we proclaim it and trust it. And we can believe that our sins are forgiven and we're accepted and we belong and pardon has been paid. The atonement tax is done with Once for all, we never need to worry about it again. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would grant to each one of us this tiny measure of faith as we look at Jesus, that we can trust him. In Jesus' name, amen.